at a time where everybody is trying to hold on to talent and attract talent, the one unique thing about any organisation is its culture. And I'm delighted to welcome onto this week's TRM podcast, Will Fraser, who is CEO and founder of 101st. Will comes from the world of sports, elite level, and is, uh, spends his time helping organisations in sport and in business and in the public sector really develop a culture, but using data and insights and analytics. Uh, develop a culture that actually can make a difference to the relationships and really build what he calls a culture of cohesion. Fascinating insights into what we can learn from the world of sports, but backed with some science. Really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Well, a massive welcome on to TRN Podcast to Will Fraser. Will, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, so, Will, Will, Will uh, I'm going to let you tell your own, own story. We're going to get into, into culture, into what you've learned from the world of elite sports and how that translates. And um, you, you now run a business called uh, 101st. Um, but just, just for those people who, are, who don't know your story... Um, where did it all start? How did you get into the rugby? What was your journey with the Saracens? Um, and then we'll move on to what you're doing now. Cool. Um, so in terms of where my story started, so I was a, I was a very big kid. Um, my mum said I had a lot of loose muscle, uh, which subsequently was a bit fat. And uh, so rugby <laughs> naturally lended itself to me. Um, at, a, at a young age, being able to kind of run through and carry the ball it was it was something I, I found very enjoyable so I picked up rugby I think probably eight years old and and I was one of the the fortunate few people in life where the second I picked up a rugby ball I knew exactly where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do and where you know the direction I wanted to take my life in so um it was always about become a professional rugby player so every kind of decision I made or my parents made or whatever it was was geared towards that kind of goal was that um, just just out of interest because I um I, I I coached at a very low level rugby mm. for, for a number of years and particularly when my lad was um going into it mm. so was it literally season one you had the ball you realized you had the sort of strength and and enjoyed it and you said this is it was yeah, it that early yeah it, it, it was literally that simple I just I just loved it um and, and I say, because of my size at the time, I happened to be quite useful. Yeah. Um, that subsequently changed as I got older, obviously, but the, the love never kind of died. So yeah. I just I just loved everything about it. Um, I grew up kind of watching my old man play for the the local Vets team and, and all that as well, which, which fed into it. I've got three brothers, so we always played, you know, full contact rugby in the in the dining room or in the garden so it was it was very much kind of you know every single day you were just you had a ball in your hand or at your feet or, or something so um and then I got picked up well I joined first joined Saris at 14 so when I was when I was younger the way it worked was you went through the county system so you played for your local your, your obviously the county you were part of um and then the county would put forward 10 players every year into the elite player development group at 14 once you were in it, it was then at the discretion of the club as to how long you were there for and if you stayed on and all that kind of stuff. So Sarah's had a catchment area of um, Kent, Essex and Hertfordshire. So I played for Hertfordshire. Um, and yeah, so got in at 14 by hook or by crook, somehow managed to stay there till 18. Um, and at 18, Eddie Jones, obviously now the England head coach, was director of rugby at the club at the time. Um, he gave me our group, myself, Owen, 
Jamie, Jackson, George, the guys that are now gone on to play for the Lions and, and all the amazing stuff they've done. Eddie gave us our first contract straight out of school. Um, really, yeah. So at 18, I went straight from school into being a, a professional rugby player, which was the dream. Uh, the dream, yeah. Also an unbelievable shock to the system. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and then managed to, to yeah. kind of play for the club during a really successful period which that was a, um, that was a that was a hell of a batch of people that came through at the same time of you wasn't it yeah so, it was amazing I mean it's um you know those four lads are also going on I think uh Jackson's over 250 games Jamie played his 250th last week obviously Owen Jamie and George all played for the British and Irish Lions Owen's 90 odd caps England captain Jamie's normal, yeah. 60 odd caps you know it's just yeah a phenomenal group to be a part of so to 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 have known these guys and, and you know, be groomsmen at each other's weddings and all that kind of jazz um, has just been phenomenal. So to be able to now watch them from the sidelines carry on that that amazing run and, and all the things they've achieved is awesome. And I've no doubt being part of that group was huge for me in terms of my own development and the fact that I actually was able to become a professional rugby player, to have those boys to kind of follow their example and to learn from um, was huge for me. Mm. Fantastic. And then, to, then, when, where did your career end? So I, I played until I was 27. So I was in professional sport. You kind of have this this uh, spectrum of players where you've got your guys that can play 10 seasons in a row with very little or no injuries. Uh, you then have your guys that can't put together more than three games without having an operation or something fairly serious. And then most kind of sit in that middle block. I was very much at the end of not being able to do more than three or four games without needing surgery on, on some part of my body. So um, I finished at, at 27. Um, at 27, I'd had 10 operations and various other bits and bobs all over, you know, from wow. top to bottom, I've, I've had something, um, which was which was a shock. So I'd, I knew fairly early on I wasn't going to have the length of career that I initially wanted because of just the state my body was in and, and, and the bits and bobs that I had going on. Um, but still to finish at 27 was still earlier than I'd even prematurely thought I was going to get to. Yeah. So that was, a, again, a bit of a learning curve and, and some stuff to, to kind of manage and, and, and deal with. But and how, 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 how did you manage that? Because actually that must be a, for somebody who's given as much to a sport over how many years that was, um, a mm. phenomenal sort of blow, I guess. Yeah, it, it, it was. It was kind of, as I say, it was it was still unexpected. But I think because in my mind, I was already looking at post-rugby because I yeah, knew, you know, yeah. my plan was basically get to 30. If I can get to 30, kind of see that current contract through, I've done well, I'm happy, I'm happy with that. So I'd already started to look outside of rugby in terms mm. of, well, what does life look for me mm. after professional sport? Um, and I'd had this theory of the, the, the more, the, basically I was completely yes, man, try everything because I had no idea what I wanted to do. So my theory was the more things I try, the more things I'll be able to cross off because I'm probably not going to enjoy them. And what I get left with will hopefully be something <laughs> that, that I'll enjoy and I can go into. So I didn't get very far along that journey, but I think because I'd started it, it helped my own mental kind of processing of it. Um, and then all the usual stuff, just I've got a phenomenal family, you know, my, my wife, um, my parents, my brothers, the club, the club were incredible. Um, you know, my friends at the club, outside the club. And actually big, a big help was the fact that the day after I retired, I was straight into my next job, which was yeah. very rare for professional sports. So the, the club 
had an idea, it was an experiment to start a consultancy business within the commercial arm of the organisation. And I think because of the period of time I'd been at the club, from kind of boy to man, the change the club had gone through, <clears throat> being part of that change, it was kind of right place, right time, where I wasn't playing anymore, so I had the time to, to give it a go. I had the knowledge of the club and the background of the club and all that stuff. So I, I think that probably saved my soul more than I gave it credit for at the time because mm. professional sports people in any sport, I think there was on average like a two, three month window of, of effectively unemployment where you've got a life that's based on earning salary X, kids that go to school based on salary X and more, all these things. So to not have any income for three months and to keep that going is really tough. Um, and especially on on the mind is why you see so many sports people really struggling when they when they finish especially when it's unexpected because of injury because it, it, the mental toll it takes is is huge so i was very very fortunate that that was mitigated quite a lot by the fact that i had a job to go into when i finished yeah, yeah. no it's interesting we, we were approached um a year ago probably by a recruitment agency who purely focused on elite sports people and bring them back into the workplace mm. And, you know, it was fairly compelling because anybody who's operated at your level for that long has got work ethic, resilience, uh, understands teamwork and all, all that, all those phenomenally trans transferable skills. So it's fascinating. So, so OK. And, 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 and in terms of now, I know you do a lot of work in terms of, uh, of the cultural piece. Um, what, what, what's your focus and, and what is the big learning from the world of elite sports that, that is transferable? Yeah, so so obviously I so I ran this consultancy business at, at Saracens for um, about three years, best part of three years, um, and it went really really well. You know, we were sitting behind one of the strongest sporting brands in the country at the time, which obviously helps move <laughs> on the pitch, which obviously helps. But effectively, the, that the whole premise of that business was looking at our success as a club, and actually saying that well, that wasn't because of the rugby. The rugby was the result of everything else. So it's looking at actually the rugby was a result of the environment that was created, the shared values, the common purpose, um, the people that were recruited, all the things actually, in many ways, the rugby was irrelevant for. The rugby was the byproduct of creating that right. So it was taking how we looked at that into corporate organisations, schools, public sector, effectively whoever wanted to know, yeah. talking it through and then going, okay, well, how can we help you deliver the same kind of outputs through the same means? Yeah. So the, 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 the biggest thing I learned from that was the power of learning from other people's experiences and the power of storytelling. And if it's told and facilitated in the right way, we can all learn anything from any story. So, so amongst many reasons, a couple of external things that were going on at the club um, in 2020 and obviously then COVID hitting, I decided to, to kind of leave after being involved with the club for 16 years and start 101st. So... 101st is what we do is use the power of incredible incredible real life experiences to drive change so everything we do is has a story and a narrative which is the vehicle for the particular change that the client wants to wants to go through and the reason we chose this route is because when i finished playing rugby when i was playing rugby you talk to people in the corporate lounges and people that are very kindly willing to you know give you a day work experience or whatever it is and they all say to you the very things you said earlier as a rugby player, as a sports person, you've got so many transferable skills and and you've not along with it. But when push came to shove, I was thinking, what the hell are these? I have no idea what my transferable skills are. You know, I can't go into an office and chuck a ball around because <laughs> that's not going to sell anything. It's not going to... Um, and in running this commercial um, 
consulting business for the club and then this what I realized is actually everything that's transferable is everything that's irrelevant to the not irrelevant the job is irrelevant for if that makes sense yeah so actually it's all the stuff that happens before the job is what's yeah. transferable so as you say it's being able to to work in a team it's being able to instill values to create purpose it's being able to communicate with with clarity to be able to actually deal with adversity and adapt to change and all mm. these things that actually get those right then it doesn't matter what the job is you're going to be better at it because yeah. you can deal with these things so so we do 100 first is very much focused on all of those things so we you know we kind of position ourselves as we look at everything before the job so we will never come into an organization and directly make people better their job because we fundamentally can't because i've never done your job i've never yeah. worked in an organization yeah. for me to come in and say right you need to x y and z one is unbelievably patronizing two is just you know it almost borders on rude that I feel like I can, I can do it. Yeah, and yeah. people just go, you know, screw you. You've never done this. Like, who are yeah. you coming in? So we look at everything before that. So actually, as like all the things I've listed and what that does, if we get those things right, indirectly, you will become better at your job because yeah. you're more emotionally connected to the people that you work with, to the organisation you work for. You actually understand your role within the organisation, the team, and how you add value and all these things, which mm. will directly then make you better at the job. So... Um, it's kind of being a consultant without being, in inverted commas, a consultant. So, so it's all about the people. So, so what, what, are, what are some of the things, you know, you work with businesses and organisations, what are typically some of the things from a people and team point of view or a leadership point of mm. view that you learn from your sporting career that you've got to nail and get right, that you're seeing more often not that are, are possibly not, not, not as good as they could be? Or is it little different different bits of the yeah. puzzle for different businesses well what, what's been fascinating is you look at my experience in sport both playing and commercially um, running a business with the clients we deal with everyone deals with the same problems everyone fundamentally they're, they're, the context is different and the nuance is different the language is, but fundamentally they're the same problems because we all deal with people and because we all deal with people we have the same problems with people that either people don't listen to us or we don't listen to them. We feel disconnection between the leadership or as leaders, we feel disconnected from the rest of the organization. We don't buy into the values. We don't agree with the purpose. All the, it's the same across any business. The, the difficulty is understanding the context behind it to be able to then create that change. So, so one of the things, one of the big things we talk around, um, values and cohesion um, are huge. Mm. Um, because you need that that kind of starting point you need somewhere to build from and if we don't have anywhere to build from then nothing's mm. ever going to change mm. so actually being able to take a step back and fundamentally look at it from a point of view right we all need to get on the same cards on the table let's understand what we all think why we think it in order to then create this level playing field we can all start from that's a really difficult thing to do because you've got to create the time space and permission to have those conversations yeah so effectively you've got to take people away from work be prepared to potentially take a hit on productivity to create that in order to create a sustainable organization environment which in the long run will give you tenfold compared to if you didn't do it um and i guess, I guess everybody knows everybody knows the sort of principles of having the the values piece right which mm. contribute to the culture so everybody knows that yeah if they're asked the right questions or, or if they reflect on it a little bit and um and i love the word cohesion but the um 
so and I, and I totally recognized a bit about you've got to invest some time and effort you've got to get people in the room to talk about stuff and, and co-design the way forward etc but so, so why 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 what why do people not do that why wouldn't they do it if they if they know the ultimate team is going to create the ultimate mm. business because work, work gets in the way yeah it's fun that that is it so it's so it's one of these ones the, the fun the the Old, well, sorry, he's still a team psychologist at, at Saris and, and um, you know, we're using quite a lot with, with what we do in terms of he's an unbelievably knowledgeable man. And he talks around culture and cohesion being the exact same as physical training. So as a professional sportsman, as the example, if we want to get stronger, we train hard in the gym. If we mm. want to be faster, we run more on the pitch. If we want to build culture, relationships and trust, we have to work at it in the same way we do with our physical trainings. We have to allocate and dedicate time permission to have those conversations, to, to talk mm. about it. If I stop training in the gym, I become weaker. If I stop running on the pitch, I become slower. If I stop giving time permission to build trust relationships and culture, it's going to get worse. Mm. So the question to organizations is, because you're right, everyone talks, and culture and all these things are the easiest things to box tick. Mm. Easiest things to box tick, you know. Um, so much so that, you know, we've actually turned down work with clients before because it's been a box ticking exercise. And that's not us. Mm. You know, we're not going to do stuff because you've got budget and that's it. You know, we're doing stuff to actually be mm. create meaningful change. But the question comes in, you, you talk this, yeah, that's that's fantastic. But actually, what are the actions to demonstrate you you mean mm. what you say? Mm. So if organizations are saying, you know, we want to build this family environment where everyone gets on and you know, great. So let's do that then. And if they then turn around and say, well, we can't do this because of you know, I don't want people to be off the phones. The question is, okay, well, how highly are you prioritizing it? Mm. And it's not a case of saying, you know, it, it's it's not one size fits all. It's, it's horses for courses, but mm. it's really getting people to question, well, how highly do we actually prioritize our people and culture? Because if we're not prepared to give people the time permission to say what they think and and give us their opinions in order to move forward, then clearly it's actually quite low down on our priority list. Um, and we talk about it in, in the sense of, you know, currency. So what currency are you running your organization on? If you're running your running your organization on talent as your currency, that's fine because you can buy talent. You know, you can hire people that aren't performing and hire people that will perform. Mm. But what you get is a very up and down kind of graph where you have these spikes in performance and then these massive dips and these spikes. It's not a sustainable way of operating. But if you run your organization on a currency of cohesion, you cannot buy cohesion. You can have all the money in the world. You cannot buy cohesion. Cohesion is something that has to be built. And you can only build it over time. So if you're saying we're going to run an organization on, on cohesion as a currency, well, how are we going to build that? How are we mm. going to allow people to spend time together outside of work, to have conversations at work, not about work, so they understand the key drivers, the motivations? Mm. How are we going to work best together as a team? The one thing we always find is you'll get, you get people in the room who feel they know each other really, really well. And we do you know, various conversations and, and exercises and bits and bobs. But what you often find is two people that are working the same team who think they're on the same level fundamentally disagree about the very basics of what they're doing. So one person, that's a really easy example, will say, oh, I love how we work because it's, it's, it's really fun, it's really relaxed, we get to kind of manage our own time. And, and someone in the same team will go, are you kidding me? Like I literally have a parrot on my shoulder every single day telling me what to do, how to do it, where to. And you go, well, you two are working the same team. And you didn't even know you come from completely opposite ends of the spectrum without knowing. So how are you ever going to work well together? And, then, and, and, and if 
these yeah. things come up in every organization we work with. One of the things I've found over the years when working with all sorts of organizations and businesses is actually once you once you get that initial buy-in that says, yeah, okay, I get it, I want it, mm. then you can go on the journey together. And and there's a lot of business leaders listen listen listening to this. The that, that concept of a current of, of the currency of cohesion is not which I absolutely love, is, is not one that anybody would talk about. And and, and yeah, they might use different different language. Mm. But how do you get to how do you how do you help leadership teams shift to the place where they're going yes i get cohesion i get the impact i get i, I get the roi that i'm going to get from this how do you how do you how do you get that shift make that yeah shift? So, so so a big part you're right is initial buy-in and engagement is is huge if you don't have the initial desire and will to to create the change it's never going to work mm. um, and one of the things we partnered with um my people obviously christian you yeah. know well um and, and fundamentally, the main premise of that is to get that initial buy-in. So, so as I said earlier, you know, we're never going to come in and tell people how to get the jobs who can't do that. In the same vein, we're never going to come into an organisation and speak to a minority demographic within that organisation and suddenly create a plan for the whole organisation. So what a lot of consultancies do is they'll come in, they'll speak to the leadership team, which is a microcosm of the whole organisation. And from that one conversation of one demographic that will probably have similar, if not the same opinions, mm. create a plan for everyone else. And what you'll get is other people in that plan will go, are you kidding me? This, yeah. is, you know, this is all, this doesn't make any sense because in my role, X, Y, and Z. So through the, the My People platform, what we can do is actually survey an entire organization. And from the results of that data, we can then make create specific intervent, interventions for specific cohorts of people that are red, red flags through the, the platform. And what we can do is then put qualitative data behind the quantitative data and, and amalgamate the two. And from that, create a program of work yeah. that should tackle the issues that have come up through the things we, we've spoken about. And in doing that, what we find is we get a much higher level of initial buy and engagement because it's their words. Yeah. It's their opinion. It's what the company have said. We're going off what they've told us, not what we've told them. Um, and I think in, in the consulting world, I want to say it's rare, but you know, a lot of consultants have only ever been consultants and haven't therefore worked in other organizations and dealt with other things. So I think, and then they'll come in and go, right, well, if you do X, you'll get Y. If you do Y, you'll get Z or whatever it might be. So I think this approach allows us to use what, what the organization is saying almost as a bit of a mirror so okay this is what your people have said yeah and, so it, and, and it's yeah and it's genuine data and insights isn't it which is yeah exactly the battle because you can you can argue with opinions but give me some data then i can't really argue that too much this is it. yeah 100 um but it is still identifying i what you're doing is identifying the gap that exists and the opportunity that exists and then yeah. getting getting people to nod around the table saying yeah actually we can we can and should be better than this this is it and and you know the platform looks at 13 different cultural constructs and engagement and and promote scores and, and all this these sorts of things but what we do is, is take that and really look mm -hmm. into it and go okay so what are the three main things here you know what are the three constructs that, that need work and within that what department cohort whatever it might be who are the people that, that for whatever reason, mm -hmm. are really struggling? And then they're the ones we kind of go on this discovery journey with. And then yeah. from those bits, we, but it's, but 
the thing, Gordon, it, it all comes back to fundamentally, it, it would all, the funnel of problems is so wide, but the solution is always very narrow because it always comes back to people. And it always comes back to relationships, cohesion and trust in one way, shape or another. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time, the, the first port of call is going, okay, well, what is the breakdown of this relationship? So if it's manager and team, if it's C-suite and middle management, if it, whatever it is, what is the breakdown? Mm. And I think, and I think in, in, in business, because by its very nature, business is, is ever moving, it's ever evolving, there's always stuff going on. People don't have those conversations because there's always something else to do. Mm. There's always another sale to make. There's always another um, campaign to start or whatever it might be. So it's mm. going to okay, get, we're actually going to, we're going to take a step back here. Mm. and take and 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 i think leaders really undermine the what power that has if you're running an organization you say right we're off the desk all afternoon mm. because actually i want to figure out what's going on here the sense of value your team have off the back of that that you're actually listening to their opinions they're being heard mm. and something's going to happen off the back of it what you then get the following day is twice as more effort from them mm. because they feel that they're generally a part of the organization and not just and yeah and i think people really undermine the power of that um mm. and also the power of an apology when as a leader if you know something's gone wrong and i always sit in politics and you can go on a whole other thing but but just stand up there and, and go look my bad i've got yeah. this wrong you know yeah. again the, the power of those things in terms of creating culture and creating trust is huge yeah i, th- I think it's really interesting and a, a couple of things a if you um the first business i built was um We've got a really cool business based on what somebody called Fluffy was culture and reputation. We said we're going to obsess, we're going to obsess about culture and reputation. It was actually, um, and nobody can argue with having a great reputation or a great culture. When we started adding some numbers on it and saying, you know, if that can impact the behaviours of our team and and our customers, then actually we can stick some really hard numbers on it. And, and, and that that sort of coupled up with knowing it was the right thing just just made the journey really easy to go down in the sense that it was it was relentless work to, to nurture the culture but it just made a lot of sense to everybody um so i think the some people potentially don't get as involved because they haven't put the numbers on it and they don't they don't necessarily have got the same numbers they're getting getting from the management accounts, which says, look at this, if we improve this, we'll get this. But over here, you've got culture, which is softer, less tangible, and the ROI is less clear. So if we can put some numbers on that. And the other, the other thought I had was the, um, you know, where you talked about identifying some of the pain points, but it, it feels to me in 2022 that there's a talent shortage out there, you know, whether it's recruitment business leaders trying to attract people to scale or whether it's their clients, the employers who are looking for people to, to, to go down their strategy. It is such a proactive uh move to make say well you know they can copy up the flexible work and they co- can copy a four-day week they can copy a, a pay rise the one unique thing that we can build is this extraordinary culture so why don't we go on the journey why don't we make that our the thing that makes us really really stand out that that mm. the thing that you really can't copy and I, I think that's i think it's a really exciting time for people to be thinking about culture done properly yeah, 100%. And, and both your, your points are completely spot on. on. On your first one, you're right. Everyone, if you if you can put some tangible stuff to it, which is what the platform does and what we do, then you're right, it's, it's clear as day. You know, mm-hmm. and you can actually, when you track over the engagement and cultural data over a period of time, you can then correlate it to spikes in performance of the organisation and drops. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what, and, and 
and it's really interesting because to your point, it, it, it's this term kind of high performance, you know, we want to be a high performing organization, has become a bit of an oxymoron because people want to become a high performing organization, but they don't know the first thing about their staff. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Do you know where your, your staff grew up? Do you know what their kids are called? Do you know where they live? Do you know where they go to school? And all because all of these things have a direct impact on performance. Mm-hmm. If you know, if we work together and I've had a massive Barney with my missus kind of the, the night before, and I come in slightly off. If you don't know what my social norms are, you don't yeah. pick up, pick up yeah. on the fact that I'm off. You just assume I'm not working very hard. So what you do is you point the finger, tell me to buckle up and crack on. What that does is actually put me into a negative spiral where I'm going to work less and less and less. Because but if you know me well enough to spot that I'm slightly off kilter when I come in mm-hmm. the morning, and you come, Will, you're right, everything okay. Even if I lie and go, yeah, yeah I'm good. The fact that you've reached out and asked means I start the day on a much better point of view than I would have otherwise. Mm. And I know you care. So actually, you know, I'm going to... And, and so, so that's that point. And then on the um, um, the second point around, and this is the other thing with culture being, you know, invert course, fluffy and, and soft. From a recruitment point of view, the culture and values are the best thing to recruit against you could ever ask for. Mm. Because the job... It's in many ways, the job's easy bit because people in senior level, senior positions. So take sport as an example. The reason you have coaches by definition is to coach. They're going to make you a better rugby player. They're going to help you pass better, tackle better. They're going to make you fit all these things. That is their job. Mm. What's really difficult is creating a good person. So if you have a criteria to recruit against, which is the organizational values, the purpose, the culture of the organization, mm. what that does is that makes you or helps you recruit good people it's then up to the people within the business to upskill them mm. you know part of a manager's role 75 percent is managing their team is upskilling mm. their team and whatever it might be so by definition they should be able to and if they can't upskill the person then they're probably not in the right role themselves but hiring good people is really difficult because a lot mm. of organizations have nothing to recruit against because the company values aren't company values they're marketing collateral yeah, you know the culture is all it's all for external purposes. Look how good we are, but actually how we operate is completely different. Um, and that's the thing we all, when it comes to you know obviously pertinent for for the network and, and recruitment. And we're we're a small business, we're a young business. We're we're looking to recruit ourselves at the moment, and we've made it absolutely explicit that you know it doesn't matter whether someone can actually necessarily do the job we're recruiting for mm. because we can bring them up to speed on that. Yeah. You need to recruit people that buy into what we do, buy into our values as an organization, who we are as a group of people. Because if we don't, it's going to become like a cancer. Mm. You know, you can you can hire the most skilled person in the world, the most talented mm. person on the job, but excuse the language, quite frankly, if he or she is a dickhead, they're going to cause more problems than they're going to solve. Yeah. If you recruit someone that is fundamentally a good person and you teach them how to do the job, you upskill them the job, what that person is going to give you is going to be phenomenal. Mm. Um, and I think it's, and that's where culture becomes like, goes from being soft to very, very hard and very, very yeah. tangible. Yeah. And the, da- the data on the platform is, is, is brilliant because that can actually give you some genuine insights that you wouldn't have otherwise. And this is it. But it does keep coming back to the leadership, doesn't it? And the ability of the managers within my team to inspire and engage and get under the skin of people and yeah look fundamentally you're right it comes that we can we can present a client with, with all the best data in the world and you know the program works but if those if that group or that person chooses to disagree with it or actually mm-hmm. thinks there's not a problem then it's never gonna it's never gonna work which is yeah. 
which is why, as I say, you know, we've had some conversations that we've we've said no to because yeah. they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're doing it because they've got budget they need to spend, or they're doing it because actually it looks good to their boss that they're doing it. Um, you know, we 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 talk a lot around this concept of um, and again, excuse the language, um, bullshit productions. So Michael McIntyre's got a brilliant skit if anyone wants to look it up on one of his Wembley tours where he talks about going for dinner and you order a bottle of wine and the wine list comes over and everyone looks at it, no one knows what they're reading, you just look at the price, they bring you a bottle, they show you the bottle and you kind of nod and go, yes, that's wine. They get you to smell it or taste it. You know, he talks around, well, when they make you a coffee, they don't bring over the milk and make you smell the milk, do they, to make sure it's off or it's on. Mm. And this whole concept of bullshit production. So we spoke about a lot when I was playing at the club in terms of, we need to create an environment where actually we're saying what we think, not what we think the person wants to hear. So if I'm a young player talking to a coach, the coach says, right, well, what are the areas you think you need to improve on? Rather than say to them what, I, what they want to hear, which gets me out of the conversation, say what I generally think. Because if I say the first, am I developing as a player? Am I learning? Am I growing? Obviously not. Yeah. If I have an honest conversation with them, then the growth is, is, is going to be huge. You know, it's like... It's like you say to someone who's your who's your biggest inspiration, and the bullshit production potentially the bullshit production answer would be some really inspirational historical figure because it's socially desirable um, and it, it gets you out of the conversation. You know, yeah. The more you build that relationship and you increase the psychological safety between you and all those two people, you ask that question again months down the line, and the answer you get is maybe a parent or a sibling or a close relative or a friend. Mm. Um, because they've been through something pretty traumatic or whatever it might be. And that answer then builds that relationship 10 times because you're showing vulnerability. And so in the workplace, when you look at it from a performance point of view, if you're having annual reviews, performance reviews, uh, weekly meetings, whatever it is, if those meetings are bullshit productions where no one's saying what they actually think and yeah. everyone's nodding along because they don't want to piss the boss off or because they know it's what the manager wants to hear, yeah. the, the organisation doesn't move. If anything, it does move, but it moves backwards because nothing's been done about the problems. Nothing's been done about the issues. So you're right. So going back to the um, using the data and the leadership, there has to be a, at minimum a desire to want to just have honest conversations about the organisation, which then the platform and the data massively emphasises that and, and gives you the, the conversations to have. You know, so it's not a case of going, right, what do we talk about? What do you think? It's going, right, here's the data. Here's what's come of it. Mm. Let's sit down and go through um, team cohesion or go through the reward structure or the stability within your organisation, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, the platform is, is huge from, from that point of view. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, I was, uh, I had the head of the uh, leadership development, leadership academy at Sandhurst on, on this uh, in the, in the middle of COVID, it was just interesting listening to you talk about the sporting environment, comparing that with the military environment and, and that, that piece about honesty as well, uh, mm -hmm. which I think is a really, really interesting piece. And you need to get that from day one, don't you? You know, if I bring in a 23-year-old into the business then, and I want honesty and open conversations, then I've got to encourage that and make, make sure they're comfortable with that from, from day one. 100%. And you, and you can, and it all starts with actions. You know, you can... You can tell someone to do something to you blue in the face, but if you don't do it yourself, then why the hell yeah. would they bother? Yeah. You know? So it's actually, and that's again why values are so valuable. We excuse the you know continuation of, of the word, but because they allow you to action what you're saying, or you don't need to say it because it comes across in your actions and what you're doing. Yeah. Which is which is 
much more powerful than you know necessarily sitting down and going right we're gonna i want you to be honest yeah okay yeah. cool what does that actually mean yeah no, absolutely fascinating, and I think it's really exciting. A, a that you you know you're bringing a little bit of science to the um, to the, the cultural piece, but equally, I just think it's so relevant for now. Um, mm. As an employer, you know whether you're running a recruitment business or run, running another organisation, that if you can take, you can take culture, you can nurture it. There is a science behind it. Um, there is an approach that you can take, and it'll it'll. It, you never get there, really, do you? You're always nurturing and, and working on it, but. Um, yeah if you get it and you create the framework then you can you can build on that no i love that who is a couple of quick ones for you um firstly if people want to reach out to you how do they get hold of you uh yeah so, you them? so have a look on our, our website so www.101st so the number yeah. 100 words and first.com has got everything you kind of need on us uh drop me an email uh will fraser at 101st.com um socials linkedin Instagram, all, all, all the usual kind of stuff. Yeah. So if you want to, you want to find out more, then then check any any of those out. Lovely. Uh, two quick questions. Who, uh, which which sort of business inspires you culturally? Oh, great question. Um, well, I'll be I'll be completely honest in the nature of the conversation we just had. Um, my old one, Saris, Saris, yeah. to be honest. So because obviously I know the journey they've been on, I know the the culture that that's there, but they've also obviously been through a a bit of turmoil the last few years with salary cap and bits and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. So being a part of it when that was going on and, and kind of watching how it was dealt and managed and, and and seeing how they're doing it even now and the time they are taken away from rugby to actually go, well, who are we now? Yeah. Have things fundamentally changed? Have, and the conversations they're having are very much the ones we look to bring in with the work we're doing with our clients. So yeah, Saracen's the ones that, that really... You know, yeah. I quite a lot. Now that is fascinating because as I mentioned to you before, I spent a day with the leadership team at Saracens mm. and and actually seeing their journey with the salary cap, cap challenges they had mm. is that's what that's when the values um come to life, don't they? And, and, oh yeah, geez. they're all yeah. when things are going well, you know, but where they where they are worth their weight in gold is when yeah everything goes peat on. Okay. And final question, who uh I don't think it's gonna be in my beloved Scotland, but who's gonna win the World Cup next year? Gosh, um, I'll be honest. I can't see past France. Really? I think France. Well, you, you, your blacks going to be there, thereabouts, Springboks. Hopefully, we will be as well. But, but at the moment, France are just incredible. You know, they've got. Right. You talk about cohesion. They've got a group of youngsters that have played together since they're about eighteen years mm. old, all now playing for the national team. All most of them play for the same club mm. as well. Um, yeah, they look red hot in the Six Nations. So I, I, at the moment. My money be on France. France it is. You've heard it here. Yeah. Will, thank you. Really, really love that. Could have kept that going. So uh, for anybody who wants to find out more, reach, reach out to Will as he suggested. And uh, yeah, we'll talk again. Good man. Thank you very much.